you. Please be seated. Thank you, Dan. I know sometimes uh, in the rush of a Sunday morning service and the time slot we have, we don't get to sing perhaps as much as we want to, but I get both services, so I get to double up on all the singing. And so I love it. So if you want to join me on the front row to both services, feel free. It's great up here, and it's, it's double the joy just to belt out those praises to the Lord. Just a quick thank you for all of you who helped behind the scenes with the Women's Conference. I know that the ladies mentioned Marlene and uh, all that she would bring. Of course, we knew that. Marlene Felix and her husband Paul have been wonderful servants of Christ for a num- number of years and uh, serving Christ along with their kids. So uh, we knew she would bless you ladies, and uh, a testimony has come back that it was absolutely marvelous. But behind the scenes, all kinds of things went on. Not only did some of you uh, ladies uh, not get to pay as much attention to the conference because you were busy helping us guys try to work out the details behind the scenes. We don't quite know how to get it like you ladies get it. But it was fitting, I think, for uh, the rest of the church to kind of get behind the scenes and serve you, ladies, because you, you always are serving our conferences throughout the year in such a marvelous way, so we're, we're glad you were blessed, and thanks to all those behind the scenes who helped with that. Also, just uh, didn't get an opportunity to personally thank you for helping with Ecclesia, but it was also a marvelous uh, weekend and tremendous gift from the Lord to us. And then also for your prayers, this last weekend I was out in the Sacramento area. There was a men's conference on that had been planned uh, a year earlier and um, they were all prepared for that conference, so it was a wonderful time, and uh, thank you for your prayers. There were about 10 churches represented, and, uh, and a whole bunch of men there just wanting to talk leadership in the home. It's a little ironic for me to talk about leadership in the home when I left while my wife was moving this past weekend, so some saw it as a stroke of genius. I, I, uh, I was burdened for her back home, but so many of you took very, very good care of us, and we appreciate that so, so very much. Take your Bibles, and for the remaining time that we have, let's look at Luke chapter 9, Luke's Gospel chapter 9. And over this session and then next week, we need to deal with this question, who do you say that Jesus is? That is the penetrating question at hand as Luke begins to unfold another miracle, and the context surrounding it. Who is Jesus? And more importantly, who do you say that he is? That has been the question that every literate culture has been asking since Jesus walked the earth. And every major religion around the world has come up with a set of answers to explain this person in history, Jesus of Nazareth. And you would be familiar with some of these. Of course, the Jewish perspective was that he was a rabbi and and that he was Mary's son. He was from Nazareth. He had a bunch of disciples that followed him around. He did some miraculous things. He claimed to be the Messiah, according to the Jewish view. And even when he was killed, um, they maintained that, yes, indeed, his disciples did say that he was resurrected. Muslims, when asked the question, Who do you say that Jesus is? They believe that Jesus might have been born of a virgin, but he's no begotten son of God. He's no God in human flesh. They do not believe that he was crucified, but that someone else who looked like him was sort of brought forward by Jesus' enemies and actually put on the cross. But Jesus himself, they believe, as a prophet, was 
taken up by the Father and rescued from such a fate. They do not believe in the incarnation. The Admaya Muslims, which is a little bit of a different sect, they do believe that Jesus may have been crucified on a cross, but he was nothing more than a wise teacher who worked some miracles. The cult of the Baha'i faith believed that Jesus did come from God, but he was just a man. He was certainly wise and a teacher. Maybe he had a divine and a human nature, but he was created. The Hindus believed Jesus was a holy man and a demigod of sorts, but still a created being. Buddhists, of course, believe Jesus was an enlightened man and a wise teacher, and that's about it. Mormons believe he was the half-brother of Lucifer. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he was Michael, the spirit, the angel Michael, and he became the Messiah at his baptism. He's not God. It's strange, isn't it? Every major religion across the globe has been somewhat compelled to find an explanation for this guy. I mean, look, why not just dismiss the stories? Why not just entomb the stories with the body of Jesus? Why not just let the whole thing kind of go away and bury the whole thing in some sort of ancient folklore? Why do all religions, major world religions, feel they have to explain Jesus in one way or another? Well, there's one glaring reason. That's because Jesus did and said things that no other human being ever did and said, nor has ever done or said since. And so this becomes the single greatest question put to men. Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you believe about him, in other words? Because what you believe about him is the hinge issue. It was, by the way, the most important question to the Lord Jesus himself when he was on the earth. And he will say it in this section to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Verse 20 of chapter 9. Who do you say that I am? Now you remember just to sort of get on the runway here that they had been set out with power and authority. We saw that last time. Verse 1, he called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. In other words, they had the authenticating power of the Messiah himself because they were about to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God and somebody needed to see that it was divine power attending the message. That way you could be held responsible. If you listen to the proclamation of the kingdom of God and you saw the display of authenticating power and you answered the question, who do you say Jesus is, with something like, ah, he, he seems like a nice guy, maybe a good teacher. This would be unconscionable. This would reveal your utter arrogance and self-exaltation. Jesus wanted to extend his ministry, so he trained the disciples. We saw that last time. He prepared them. Uh, he identified them, then assessed their character and developed it. And then along the way in his early ministry, he taught them doctrinally. And then he exposed them to ministry in stages so that it was an insulated training environment. And then he put them through a season of testing and evaluation and eventually he commissioned them right here and he sends them out. Verse 6 indicates that they did go and they went throughout the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. You remember last time they had some tasks. The first was to go out with the power and authority and preach that message, giving the same compassionate healings that Jesus was displaying. It was a clear mission, verse 2, to proclaim the kingdom of God and then to perform this authenticating miraculous power. He made them dependent, you remember verse 3, 
He said to them, take nothing for your journey, not a staff or a bag or bread or money. Don't have two tunics apiece. Look, uh, you may be exposed to inclement weather, enemies. You're going to get responses to the gospel. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to totally depend upon me. I don't want you to secure your journey because I don't want you distracted with the tendency to get sidetracked over into some village looking for supplies. I don't want any of that. I'll set everything up. I'll prepare everything for you. You go with nothing, just the shirt on your back and the voice. That's what I want you to do. And he said, I want you to do something when you go into every town and you proclaim the gospel. When you see the response to that question, who do you say Jesus is? You're going to get some people that actually believe. And when they believe, I want you to use that house as a staging area. You notice that? Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And if you're invited in with gospel proclamation, God is drawing that person. They open their heart to who Christ really is. They repent. They're a, they're a place you can stage the ministry, and from that house you can preach to that village. On the other hand, I want you to note those that reject the truth. And I want you to make a public display for the village to see that that house rejected the message. That was the whole shaking the dust off your feet gesture. And so departing, they went out. This is what Jesus did. We saw this all the way back in chapter 4, verse 43. Jesus went preaching the gospel of the kingdom and proclaiming it. Chapter 8, verse 1, same thing. He was sent for this purpose. This is the Lord's way of making a direct connection between what the Father gave Jesus to do and what Jesus gave the 12 to do. And in chapter 10, what the 12 are going to give the 70 associates to do and what the 70 associates are going to see every other disciple start to do throughout the globe, all the way down to you and me. An unbreakable chain, a link between us and the gospel proclamation ministry of Jesus. And what was it supposed to do? What was the impact it was supposed to have? Well, it was supposed to put a dividing line, a a polarization. It was supposed to stir up debate about who Christ is. You know, the church has tried to soft pedal Jesus so much in our culture that sometimes people do what they call ministry and it hardly makes a, a dust cloud of any kind. That is never to be the intention. I don't want to be personally obnoxious to people. I want to be gracious and loving. But the message itself, it is to provoke debate. It is to bring it down to that one question. Who do you say that he is? You personally. Who do you say he is? That's where it's supposed to go. And that's exactly what was happening as the disciples went out. Jew and Gentile conversions were taking place. Massive crowds couldn't be kept away. The message of authority and power was being preached by the disciples. And people were hearing that Jesus had now commissioned some other men who had displays of power. And they were doing healing. And so you better listen to them. This is starting to spread beyond just one guy. That was intended. That was intended. Notice verse 6, they went throughout the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And verse 7 says, Herod heard of all that was happening. Yes, that's the point. This is supposed to go right up to the palace walls and right out to the lowest village fishermen. It's supposed to have its impact, provoke debate. Look at verse 7. It was said by some, Jesus is this. And by some, Jesus is this person. And by others, Jesus is this. Yes, they're debating it. It's stirred up conversation 
Who is this man? Verse 9, Herod asks that very question. Who's this man about whom I hear such things? When the disciples came back, verse 10, they gave an account to Jesus of all that they had done. They had gone out. It had taken public notice. Verse 11, the crowds were aware of Jesus' withdrawal from public and followed him. So he welcomed them and he started doing it again. Verse 11, he, he began speaking about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. And then verse 18, he questioned the disciples saying, who do the people say that I am? I mean, even Jesus is bringing it right back to center. What are you going to do about me? Who do they say I am? Verse 20, but who do you say that I am? What you have in verses 6 to 27 is Luke putting the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 plus, putting it right in the center of this issue, where verse 20 now becomes the key central feature of these verses. Who do you say that I am? The miracle becomes then a backdrop for the disciples to get some intel from the crowd about what they're answering with regard to that question. And then eventually the disciples' view will be exposed and then eventually Jesus is going to talk about what every true follower's view ought to be. So it's a very instructive section. 6 to 27, there are four views of Jesus that rise from this text. Two are disastrous and two are correct. The first will be the royal palace's view. That's Herod, the client king of Rome. He's actually the king of Israel appointed by Rome as sort of a puppet. The royal palace's view. Second, the superstitious crowd's view. Some strange things are said by the crowd. Then we'll see the chosen disciples' view. The chosen disciples' view and... We won't get to the last one till next week, but it's absolutely rich as this whole passage crescendos to it. Every true follower's view. You want to know what your belief about Jesus ought to be and what impact it ought to have in your life? That comes at the end of this mountain peak passage where Luke just takes us into this miracle. He comes into the views of Jesus from the crowd, the palace, all the way into this miracle, and then all the way to the disciples, and finally to every true follower. So that in the end, we we have to deal with that question ourselves. Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you say about him? What do you believe about him? And whether or not it has changed your life. And so that's what Luke is doing here. And so the first thing we notice, beginning in verse 7, is the royal palace's view. The royal palace's view. As things are getting stirred up, verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, or the text literally should read, completely at a loss. Completely and utterly at a loss. That's the verbiage here. Why? Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. Who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. 
Now, Herod, as you know, this is the name applied to the, the Herodian dynastic rulers, four generations of them in Rome, actually. And he is not Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., and he was the one that tried to kill Jesus in his infancy. This is his son, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was a corrupt puppet king, as I said, appointed by Rome just like the others. There were some other sons that were appointed over particular areas, Archelaus and Philip, also puppet rulers, so to speak. And then one of their friends who'd made his way into the royal line, Lysianus, who, who ruled Abilene or the area of Abilene. So at this point, Israel is being ruled by this Roman-appointed dynasty of kings that carry the Herodian name. All the regimes were oppressive. All of them were corrupt in their policies, and their leaders were basically irreligious, just fascinated with religion, yet they were over Israel. Now, what you have here, I don't want you to imagine that the reports came to Herod's palace by just commoners and and people in the villages walking right up to the palace walls. That was very dangerous. You didn't do that kind of thing. There had to be official sessions held in the official chamber for news to come, and the person that brought it would be the one out with his finger on the pulse of the common people, and then he would bring it in an official place where the king was addressed, He was invited to the chamber. He came and reported to the king, and it was very, very ceremonial and very official. And in fact, you could be in serious trouble if you didn't make that approach and come with permission, royal permission. So what you have here is that news is starting to reach Herod's ears by some of those in his closest circle, and he's holding official chamber sessions, and he's made several inquiries. No doubt he sent out official investigators, and verifiable testimony was was brought up. But what Herod heard greatly distressed him or unnerved him. As I said, this verb that that Luke likes to use, perplexed, is the translation. Again, just kind of a weak English translation. It literally means to be completely at an utter loss given the circumstances. Luke 24, verse 4, when the women came and found the tomb empty, same term. Luke says they were utterly at a loss to explain this. Luke will use it again several times in the book of Acts, Acts 2.12, Pentecost, men speaking languages by the Holy Spirit that they had never learned. The people were at an utter loss to explain this. Acts 5.24, when the apostles were first thrown in prison, an angel of the Lord came and opened the prison cell, and they were gone in the morning, and the guards were completely unnerved, fearfully confused, and at a loss to explain this, same term. Acts 10.17, Peter sees a vision about clean versus unclean. And as a Jew who grew up believing the Gentiles were all defiled and unclean, suddenly he's being told by the Lord that all these things are completely and and totally clean. And he is absolutely at a loss to explain it. So you get the idea. Herod is hearing these reports in the official chamber and he is unnerved. Why is he unnerved? Well, the first was a report of a resurrected John the Baptist. Notice someone came and reported, or the report came to Herod in the chamber, that John had risen from the dead. Now, this would be a serious problem, if not a confusing one, mystifying. A popular word had been growing on the street that Jesus' power was now really just John the Baptist resurrected in the person of Jesus. 
Now, that's a strange idea anyway, right? Because their ministries overlapped. First of all, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. People saw that. Then John the Baptist went to prison and he inquired in an official inquiry to Jesus about his ministry, saying, are you the official one? Because I don't want to die before I've done my job. So their ministries overlap. So it would be rather odd for the, the crowd to be imagining that John the Baptist, after he was beheaded by Herod, had somehow resurrected in the person of Jesus when Jesus was already alive during the Baptist's ministry. Furthermore, we have nothing in the Gospels that suggests reincarnation or some regular rampant belief in reincarnation. So, so again, it's rather strange. You say, so what's happening here? Well, it seems to be that what's happening is that because of the reappearance of John the Baptist, in other words, John the Baptist came, the Bible says, in the spirit and power of Elijah. You remember? Micah chapter, or Malachi rather, chapter 5 verse 4 said that that Elijah would come back and he would come in the spirit, chapter 4, verse 5 rather, would come back in the spirit of Elijah and the power of Elijah. He'd be like a second Elijah that arrived. And when he came back and John the Baptist came on the scene, Jesus even said in the Gospels that this is the one. He is the second Elijah if you have a heart to accept it and believe it. This is the reappearance of of a powerful prophet in the same spirit and power of Elijah, the great prophet, and John the Baptist then, in some people's minds, was sort of like a reincarnate Elijah, even though that's never what the Bible taught. Verse 8, it was reported by some that Elijah had appeared. He was promised. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and Jesus said this is indeed the second Elijah, Matthew eleven fourteen. And so they're debating the issue, and it's all stirred up, and the reports are making the official chamber session. And verse 8, even resurrected other old prophets are now part of the superstition. And so this anticipation of Elijah coming and displaying all this power, and John the Baptist being on the scene, and then he was beheaded, and Jesus is doing the same thing, and his disciples are going out doing the same thing, this has turned into a full-blown rumor mill with people buzzing around, sort of playing the guess which prophet has come back kind of thing. So it's a bizarre set of superstitions that has reached the royal palace. And what's frustrating to Herod is that this is a menace that he tried to get rid of. This is a troubling menace that has not gone away. Look at verse 9. I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? Look, this this is the king's most unnerving scenario. I took care of it. I mean, he feels guilty about it because he was manipulated into it and he was fascinated with John's preaching. But once it was done, I mean, think about it. He's royalty. He makes a decision, thumb up, thumb down. His thumb went down. John's head was cut off. He saw John's head on a platter. And so he's saying, I'm the greatest power in the land appointed by Rome, Caesar in Rome. I killed John the Baptist. I myself had him beheaded and saw his head And you're telling me this menace isn't over? There's more? And the things I'm hearing are even greater than John the Baptist's power? That's what he's expressing. I thought I took care of this unnerving problem. And and as a king who's always threatened about his own position and having been a manipulator like his father was who usurped the throne, this is 
paranoia. He's also, as I said, plagued with guilt because of how he got rid of John the Baptist. It says in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 20, that he knew John the Baptist to be a righteous and a holy man, and he was fascinated with his preaching. In answer to the question, who do you say that Jesus is, Herod? He's a fascinating preacher. The guy's fiery. I like John the Baptist. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, I'm hearing such things about him. I'm not really sure he's going to be anything more than a fascination to me as well. I liked his prophet. But Herod was easily manipulated. You remember Mark's gospel gives the account, Mark chapter 6, Herodias, his illegitimate wife, um, was confronted by John the Baptist on their adulterous relationship and then their illegitimate marriage, and she was angry. She held a grudge against John and hated him for confronting them. And Herod, no doubt by now, feels really foolish at how easily he was taken in by this manipulative tactic on the part of his wife whose daughter was put up to dancing some carnal thing in front of him and he easily gave away the Baptist's head. So he's stunned. He's stunned by the news that another person with the same displays of divine power is on the scene. And so the menacing ministry of John the Baptist is not over. And in fact, Herod begins to believe that this is John the Baptist resurrected. Mark's gospel indicates he kept saying, this must be John the Baptist resurrected. It must be him. So even he probably has the superstitious idea that if John the Baptist came back, it's to get him. If John the Baptist resurrected in this guy Jesus, he's got enough power to overthrow Herod because of the way Herod killed him. There's guilt, superstition, there's troubling fear, all of that. He's in turmoil. Then you see the superstitious crowd's view the superstitious crowd's view. Notice verse 10, when the apostles returned from their preaching event, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. And so taking them with him, he withdrew himself to a city called Bethsaida. The crowds were aware of this and followed him and welcome, welcoming him, welcoming them rather, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. By the way, if you just look at the northern shore of Galilee, on the uh, northeastern end near Capernaum was Bethsaida, the one that Jesus cursed because he did so many miracles there and they didn't believe him. And the Bethsaida here, suggested by history, is probably on the west side where it was a smaller population. It was a newer town uh, built, history suggests, by Philip, who was tetrarch of that area, and he built this newer sort of version of Bethsaida on the northwestern shore, or northeastern shore rather. So you have, you have Bethsaida on the northwestern shore near Capernaum. I said that wrong earlier. I said it was the eastern shore. So northwestern shore near Capernaum, the one that was cursed. Northeastern shore, you have a smaller version, more private, less population. And Jesus withdraws there with his disciples to be refreshed and to teach them and to take in the news of how their evangelistic trip went. And so they go there, but the crowd won't let them get away. Now, ultimately, there's a miracle that's about to unfold here, and we talked about it a little bit at Ecclesia, and it's very, very important context here in Luke, but he gives us so little detail because it's really not the focus of the text. It's an amazing miracle, and we'll just walk briefly through it in the time we have. 
But what is more important is what Luke says Jesus used the miracle in order to do. Notice verse 18, just working backwards a little bit. Right after the miracle of the feeding of this crowd, it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? Now notice what the people said. John the Baptist, or Elijah, or one of the prophets of old had risen again. So here Luke makes the connection in the narrative. Here's what he's highlighting. He wants to know what is the general consensus of the crowd we just fed. And of course the disciples can get that kind of intel because they've just been moving in and through this crowd of about ten to 20,000 people making sure they all had enough food. Now as I said, we looked at the response of the people when we looked at John chapter 6 and John's record of this account, we didn't actually look at the miracle. So let's just sort of see the miracle unfold. All right, they, um, they came back from their trip. The crowds now found them. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, verse 11. And as the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to Jesus, Send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. There's no food around. There are villages in the outlining areas. It's the end of the day. These people, there's a ton of them. Um, It's interesting. It says 5,000 here. Mark's gospel says 5,000 aside from women and children. So it is a larger crowd than just 5,000. And as you know, moms would have been very interested in feeding their children and their families. They'd left their homes to follow the miracle worker, at least for now. They aren't back home where their comforts and their jobs. And so ultimately they need to be fed. And the disciples know this and they're probably hearing about it. So they say to Jesus, send the crowd away. You're the one that's teaching. In other words, cut your sermon off. Don't get any ideas from that. (laughs) Cut your sermon off. Let these people go. It's a desolate area. There are surrounding villages. They need time to set up lodging and something to eat. But, verse 13, he said to them, you give them something to eat. (laughs) Okay. What? You give them something to eat, Jesus says. Now, the crowd is very needy. Mark 6.33 tells us they, they watched Jesus and the disciples get into a boat and head for the eastern shore, and they ran ahead on foot. So they're exhausted. They arrived before he did. And Mark even says when they arrived before he did and he got out of the boat and was there, the crowd who'd made themselves aware of where, where he was, they got there and Jesus felt compassion for them as sheep without a shepherd. I love that. Jesus could have said, hey, can I just get some quiet? But he wants to pose the question, and he wants the disciples to put his finger on the pulse of the crowd, and so what's he going to do? He's in the, in the wonderful sovereign providence of God, once again, this, the perfect scenario unfolds for the disciples to get in and around the people to hear what they're saying in answer to the question. Who do you say that he is? What do you believe about him? He felt compassion for them, And so Jesus, as a purpose behind this miracle, wants to elevate the discussion, stir up a debate, 
because he knows the hearts of men. He knows they will chase some cheap satisfaction which can't satisfy. He knows they're blind, and so he wants to expose the heart and put it right to them. Who do you believe that I am? Can I supply spiritually like I'm supplying physically? Do you believe that you have to follow me because I'm an authority? Is my message sovereign or is it not? Is my power singular or is it not? This is the issue. So he tells the disciples, you give them something to eat. And they said, we, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Now that's, there's in the white spaces there, the other gospels tell us that they, they, did, they went on a little hunt. And Andrew found this little boy, according to John's gospel, verse 9 of chapter 6, with some barley loaves, which was just inexpensive bread purchased by the poor, and some fish, two fish, which, which were pickled typically, and they were small. I'm not saying they would be the exact size of what we might say are sardines today, but not much bigger. Two little fish to snack on and some barley loaves. And so Andrew was doing the math. He could understand this is 20,000 people. It's too great a need. And so Jesus, um, when he hears that there's not enough, Verse 14, he said to the disciples, have them sit down and eat in groups of about 50 each. Mark says 100 and, and groups of 50. So you had the disciples gathering up a few men in the group probably and saying, all right, help me. Uh, we, got, we got a large crowd here, maybe about ten to 20,000 people. This is a massive crowd. We've got to tell them to sit in groups of 50 and 100. We're going to take care of their meal. Clearly, Jesus is going to continue teaching or instructing. That's what they thought. But at the end of the day, they're hungry. So they don't know what's about to happen, but they're ready to listen. They're tired. And they get into groups as they're told. Verse 15, they did so. And the disciples had all of them sit down. I suppose then in these groups, they're sitting down like they're getting ready for a meal, like you and I would. We'd set up, you know, some outdoor thing. We'd set it up. That's what they're doing, setting it up. But I love this, verse 16. He took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them. Here it is. There's no fanfare here. Look at this. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. He kept giving them. He just kept giving, kept distributing I don't know if the disciples walked up to him and saw it actually happening, but there was always more. Everybody rushing around, the disciples organizing the groups of 50, groups of 100, and a few leaders to grab the food from the, from the disciples, and, and there's just food. It keeps coming. Ex nihilo, Jesus is just making it on the spot. <laughs> Man, when we want to feed hungry people, we've got to organize logistics, we've got to raise funds, we've got to do benefits and all that. We've got to hire organizations, set up camps. We've got to get refugee tents up. We've got to process all the logistics and then repeat the process. And there's never enough, it seems. And here's Jesus on a spring day on a hillside. Mark says it was green grass. We know it was about the spring season. Here he is feeding 20,000 hungry people by himself without help. And notice, everyone was satisfied they all ate and were satisfied and there was excess <laughs> they had left over what was 
picked up and there were 12 baskets full. You know, does, does Jesus not know how much to create? What's the deal here? This is just the Lord overwhelming them with divine supply and power. Who do you say that I am? Can I supply? Am I sufficient? Will I deliver on what I promise? Do I have divine power from heaven to do what just seems to you so bizarre, so at a loss to explain, but for me is nothing more than just a half an hour of just creating out of nothing food for an entire crowd? And they kept eating. What is shocking about this is that Jesus wants to put the question to the disciples about what they're hearing as they're walking around. What are the people saying? I know they're debating it. What are they saying now? That's the whole point of of verse 18. While he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. So after the miracle, away, he gets secluded. He's praying. The disciples are with him, and he says, Who are the people saying that I am? I mean, you've just been with them. They ate and were fully satisfied from one lunch. Surely somebody's going to be responding. That's what makes verse 19 so shocking. Well, some are saying, you know what? He, he might be John the Baptist. He, he just might be Elijah, just a prophet. He might be a prophet of old. And you remember John 6 says they tried to make him king. So politically, you're an advantage. Militarily, you're an advantage. You've got power. You're going to get rid of oppression and our economic concerns. You're going to take care of us. You're going to be our ruler. And he withdrew himself from them because he knew they were going to do that. And so he was away with his disciples and he asked them the question, who are people saying that I am? I mean, it's just staggering. They all ate. Their little kids ate. Their family ate. Just one family. Just one. To say, he is the Messiah. He must be. He's not just a prophet. He's the Messiah. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, he was beheaded. Elijah, John the Baptist was the second Elijah. He's, he's done. The ministry's over. Any other prophet? Who? Who was promised to come back like Elijah? None of them. What? That's all superstition. But here's a guy right here in front of us. And he sent out disciples and gave them authority and power over disease so that other people were being healed through the disciples. Come on. Anybody. Who do you say that he is? Well, he might be a prophet. I mean, this, isn't this just how it is sometimes? Maybe that's just how it is with you. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, you know, I I realize that the Bible says he resurrected from the dead, but that might make him special. Really? He claimed not to be special, but to be God. I love what he does here. He says to the disciples, But who do you say that I am? That's the chosen disciples' view. Look at this. You had the superstitious crowd's view. Now you have the chosen disciples' view. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. There's so much theology packed in that phrase, but we know two things right away. First of all, you are the appointed one, the anointed one, the Messiah who was promised by God, whom all the prophets talked about, the whole Old Testament pointed to. Israel was anticipating 
You're him. You're that guy. The one that King David was a type of, the one that every redeemer was a type of, the one that everything in the Old Testament pointed to and spoke about, every prophet adored and spoke about and even died for. In terms of them sharing the message, they were persecuted and run out and killed, even by their own people, just to speak about this guy. He's it. That's him. And the second thing is he's the Christ of God. That is to say he's incarnate. He's from heaven as the Son of God incarnate. And by the way, this whole scenario leads then to the mountain where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and they see his kingdom glory in all of its brightness and a cloud hovers over them in that next section and a voice comes out of the cloud and says, This is my Son. My chosen one, verse 35, listen to him. Obey everything he says. Everything. So which view are you? Are you the fascinated, like Herod? Ah, Preaching's pretty good. Jesus' statements are pretty good. I remember speaking to a family member who is not a believer, and they went to some conference and this guy got up and he said I believe everything Jesus said but I only believe what Jesus said and what he meant was he put together a bible of all the red letter statements in the gospels and he follows only what Jesus says never mind that in those statements sometimes inked in red in bibles Jesus himself says all that the prophets said shall come to pass All that the history books of Israel say must come to pass. None of it will pass away until all of it is fulfilled. I remember saying that to a family member. So do you you believe all that Jesus said? You're going to study all that Jesus said? Yes. So what does it mean, John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. How can there be multiple views of salvation and yet you believe significantly in the words of Jesus? Sounds very exclusive what Jesus is saying. Is that you? You're just fascinated with with Jesus? He's a fascination. He's a curiosity. Maybe he's unnerving. Maybe he makes you nervous like he made Herod nervous. Or maybe for you, it's, it's just a matter of, look, I hope God supplies what I want in this temporal life. And you know what? If my economics are pretty good, ah, Jesus might be my partner. Maybe for you, he's a convenience. Maybe for you, he's an excuse to get away from oppression. Maybe for you, he's some personal temporal comfort. If you're like the chosen disciples, he's God incarnate. He's the one that the Old Testament pointed to, talked about, and the prophets even died proclaiming. He's that one. There is only one, the exclusive one. Can't have a relationship with God the Father without knowing the Son, period. John chapter 5. Will not happen. You can say you're religious, have a relationship with God. Oh, yeah, I know God. God and I have an arrangement. You can say all those things all you want, but the Old Testament pointed to the Christ of God. He's it. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be redeemed. So what does that look like to someone who really does believe that? 
Well, that's what Jesus goes on to explain. He, he goes on to explain every true follower's view, and we'll, we'll unpack it next week, but notice, notice what he says. Verse 21, he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. You say, well, now, wait a minute. That seems incongruous. He just sent them out to proclaim it along the shores of Galilee, and now he's telling them, I don't want you to tell anyone that I'm the Christ of God. What in the world does that mean? Well, he's not talking about don't go out and proclaim that I'm the Messiah. He's saying, I don't want you rushing into some official headquarters down in Jerusalem when we go to the Passover. I don't want you rushing down there and starting to make some public display because... That time is coming. Notice what he says. Verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Look, that time is coming when I go down to Jerusalem and I give myself over to the chief priests. I don't want it to happen prematurely. And listen, I don't want you, my true disciples, to have a faith that's crushed because it comes upon you. I'm going to protect you from that moment. You'll have to face martyrdom later, but I'm going to protect you from that moment. I'm going to be suffering. I'm going to be mistreated. And I don't want you running off and ended up getting arrested and taken too early. I am protecting your faith. But look at verse 23, and he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It is going to cost you at some point. I'm going to protect you from this happening too early or in a way that would crush your faith, but it is going to happen to every true disciple. So here's the question. Who do you say Jesus is? If you answer it, he's the Christ of God, then every true follower of Jesus Christ who knows that and says it and believes it, it's life-altering, it's life-threatening, it is eternity shaking and that is going to be Jesus whole point the miracle was just a way to polarize the crowd and then see the the disciples affirm that they believed it and then he's about to say well then every true disciple that you go out and proclaim the truth to who actually says I'm the Christ I am God in human flesh everyone who says that this is what's going to happen to them this is what they should believe about their life. This is what they should know will come to pass. This is how they should live. To Herod, he's an unnerving menace. To the crowd, he's a meal ticket. To the disciples, he's their Messiah. To every follower of Christ, he must be resurrected Lord no matter the cost. That's the point. Not everybody's going to respond to your proclamation of Christ. There are some here who don't, don't believe that Jesus is the Christ of God. There are some of you who don't believe it. You wander around from fascination to indifference to, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting stuff or, you know, the preaching fascinates me or the church fascinates me or I like this group or whatever. Maybe for you, Jesus has been an emotional idea that's comforting you emotionally. Maybe he's the religion you grew up with and so he's your only sanity because your parents seem to be like decent people and they believed in Jesus. And so he's just sort of passed down like you're kind of a grandchild in the faith. You still have to answer the question, who do you say that he is? You. You personally. 
He can't be a fascination and be a redeemer. He is no temporal comfort, guaranteed economic safety, security. He is who he says he is. I'm the Messiah, the coming one. I'm your redeemer. And he who comes after me, you must deny yourself. Deny what? Your self-exaltation, your self-preservation, your self-justification. You must exalt him, not yourself. You must promote his reputation, not your own. His significance, not your own. His glory, not your own. You must promote his work of righteousness, not your own self-justification because you think you're good enough and you've balanced the scales with some good against the things that you know are problems. He can't be any of those things and be Redeemer. You must come to him as he says. And when you do, it's life-threatening. Safety and security threatening. It's life-altering and it's, it's a call to become something totally different than you were before. Listen to John Newton. What think you of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme you cannot be right in the rest until you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears in your view and he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you and mercy or wrath are your lot. Some take him a creature to be, a man or an angel at most. Sure, these have not feelings like me nor know themselves wretched and lost. So guilty, so helpless am I, I dare not confide in his blood, nor on his protection rely, unless I'm sure he is God. Some call him a savior in word, but mix their own works with his plan, and hope he his help will afford when they've done all that they can. If doings prove rather too light, a little they own, they may fail. They purpose to make up full weight by casting his name into the scale. And some call him the pearl of great price and say he's the fountain of joys, yet feed upon folly and vice and cleave to the world and its toys. Like Judas, the Savior they kiss, and while they salute him, betray. Ah, what will profession like this avail in his terrible day? If asked what of Jesus I think, though still my best thoughts are but poor, I say he's my meat and my drink, my life and my strength and my store. My shepherd, my husband, my friend, my savior from sin and from bondage or thrall, my hope from beginning to end, my portion, my Lord, and my all. Who do you say that he is? That's the question Jesus most wants to ask. Lord, thank you for the text before us, the narrative, the unfolding of it, the instructive historical account of Herod and his musings and the superficial crowd. Thank you for the declaration of Peter on behalf of the disciples, though Judas was a betrayer and these words would have been on his lips as a phony 
And thank you for what we will soon have as conviction and penetration into our hearts when you say that we must leave all, forsake all to follow you. Lord, it's so hard to do in our culture when even the weak church of evangelicalism tries to grab the best of both. And it's not possible to have Jesus and all the junk. May we never pursue that. May we just answer the question clearly and concisely by the work of your Holy Spirit. Who do we say that you are? You are the Christ of God. You're our Redeemer, our friend, the only hope. May we not live foolishly in the disobedience of deceived thinking. But may we just answer the question and face it with brutal honesty. Lord, if someone here today is deceived, hit them hard with this. Open their eyes with your truth and gently bring them back by your mercy that they might see the truth and the rebellion. If someone's here today and has been indifferent or just you've been a fascination, Lord, break their pride. Help them. We have compassion on them as you did when you looked upon us as sheep without a shepherd. Lord, give them a shepherd. Make them see that you are their only shepherd. And help us to be gripped by the life-altering, life-changing dynamic of following you. It's about your lordship. You're a resurrected Lord. We follow you, your authority, your sufficiency, your love your sovereignty, your power. Help us to proclaim the truth and just let the debate begin and keep giving it the question, who do you say that he is? Lord, help us to do that as a ministry and as individuals in Christ's name. Amen. Stand if you will, and I'll just remind you as our guests.